Hello, Kristen here. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you that the antidote is a thing that's happening. It's a series of monthly gatherings that will help you return to your body and your being over and over again in the face of, you know, 2024, election insanity, climate change, global wars, your own personal stuff, other stuff. It's crazy out there. And it's easy to abandon yourself and freak out. The antidote is for bringing you home to yourself so that you can be safe in your being even when the world outside of you feels objectively unsafe. And because everybody's marketing at you and there's no reason for you to believe me, you can head to jointheantidote.com to grab a free recording of the first session that happened this week so you can feel it instead of thinking about it to see if it's a good match for you. That is jointheantidote.com. Scroll all the way down and you will see a place to pop your email address in and grab the recording. Hello and welcome to this episode of That's What She Said. Today we have Beth Pickens who wrote Your Art Will Save Your Life and who I um, I carry the book around like it's always in my backpack, like a child carries a blanket. That's how good it is. Um, I've bought copies for people and I wanted to share her and her magic with all of you. So hi, Beth. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad to have you. And tell me about how you officially describe yourself to other people who ask. Sure. The short answer is I'm an arts consultant. And that's kind of a broad title. The word consultant doesn't really mean anything. But essentially what I do is provide career consultation, strategic planning, and fundraising for artists and arts organization. And my background is in counseling psychology. I earned my master's degree in, in counseling psychology. So the, the nature of my work is really steeped in that training, combined with many years of working in the arts directly with artists. Yeah, this it's this beautiful combination of like, it's just capitalism. And also like, but your feelings matter, mm-hmm. but capitalism, but your feelings matter. So because it can tend to go one way or the other. And I like that you you walk that line very, very, very well. Yeah, I think our, our internal experiences and the external world broadly and the, the sort of small world that we're steeped within, they're so inextricably linked. They are, but most people don't acknowledge that. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, you know, that comes directly out of my training in feminist therapy. Feminist therapy is a thing? Feminist therapy is a thing. It's a theoretical orientation within counseling psychology that... Um, you know, every, anytime, if, if you go to see a talk therapist, you can ask a therapist, like, what, what's your theoretical orientation? Or just like, what's your method of working with people? And people use all kinds of different methodologies. And one orientation is feminist therapy. And I was trained by a wonderful feminist therapist in my master's program. And feminist therapy just acknowledges power differential, both within the dyad of the counselor and the per- person seeking help, and the larger structures that we grow up within. And I think for a lot of people, that seems like no duh, but like within the world of counseling and therapy that, you know, that's a very particular way of working with clients. Yeah, that's not a no duh in therapy at all. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. So, so I bring that to, um, to the work that I do with artists now one-on-one. Beautiful. So can you talk a little bit about um, the people who listening are like artists and creative people and people who are like secretly closet creative, but don't describe themselves as artists? 
Um, but can you talk a little bit to why we always want to stop making stuff and do something quote unquote more important when the political climate gets hard? Like that's the first thing that we do. Like I need to do something serious. This sure. is not enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I think first of all, it's, it's a really common response from artists and, and creative people and makers that, um, to, to devalue their practice because we are living in a culture that devalues art and devalues creative practices. Um, some people really internalize the message. It's luxurious. Like I shouldn't get to do this thing I love because America, you know, has this long history of a present work ethic. Like you work is suffering and that's good. And then you die. <laughs> I definitely mm -hmm. grew up with that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so th that's one thing. Another piece is because arts are often the first on the chopping block with government funding and in education, it, we, we get all this cultural messaging that it's a luxury. It's not that important. It's when, when, when shit hits the fan, that's something that we just have to give up because something else is more important. We see that externally all the time in our, in large systemic ways. So it makes sense that um, individuals will also internalize that messaging. And and also when, when the proverbial political shit hits the fan, people have to make choices about their resources and their time. And so I think people will be quick to give up something that they derive meaning out of in the short term. And that's where, that's where I ask everyone to halt and consider, is this a good way to live? Is this sustainable? If this is something, if you're an artist, you need to make art to be on the planet. It's, I argue, how you understand being alive. And that's what makes artists different from people who aren't artists. This is a massive way you communicate, understand yourself, relate to people in the planet, and um, uh, kind of have a spiritual interior. And so will, willingly giving that up means losing something that you do to take care of yourself. And that is not sustainable for any kind of increased or ongoing political momentum. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, specifically in your book, you talk about FAQs for oppressive political climates and making art during fascism. And there was this one question on page 119 that was like, oh, yes, this, exactly. This gets reflected um, even with my people's. Um, it's how do I stay woke but also function and maybe even have fun? Is it okay to have fun? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, which, like, interiors, I'm like, oh, of course it's okay to have fun. Like, but But I feel that, and I am like – I'm fairly attuned to my own interiors. So can you talk to that just a little bit? Yeah, I think it, it functions on so many levels. I mean, in one way, people, marginalized communities can experience sort of like survivor, survivor's guilt. You know, like if I'm, if I'm flourishing and happy and doing well, what does that mean for all the people I relate to who are like me, who are suffering? That, that's one. Another is, you know, creative people and artists, not all of them, but they tend to be empathetic people who have a lot of sensitivities to suffering and can sort of see and, and, and notice suffering. And it's really hard to be a human person who knows suffering is happening, can see it, can hear about it, is acutely aware of it in their own family and their community, or just broadly nationally or globally, and continue to do the mundane things of life and even seek out joy and fun. And we are living in this unprecedented digital climate. We don't have longitudinal studies that tell us what is the impact on our individual and collective psychology with unprecedented access, instant access to news of suffering and calamity everywhere instantly. We have this 
unprecedented access to this knowledge, whereas even 25 years ago, that wasn't the case. It's so new to have devices. Even if you are not carrying one, you cannot get away from news. You have to purposefully remove yourself from people who have devices. And that's hard to do. Like you have to get yourself to a retreat where there's no electronics or something. It's really hard to get away from, it's really hard to get away from news, not just news in, in terms of the news cycle, but social media, which is delivering information all the time. Because we can no longer escape that, or you have to very purposefully do that, we have this nonstop access to information of suffering, illness, death, and terror globally and in our nearby communities. And I, I think about this a lot because I think what what does that mean for our if we if we kind of step back and think about history with a much broader lens of like five thousand or ten thousand years, what's that doing to us? What's that doing to our brain wiring? What's that doing to our social psychology? What's it doing to our to our spiritual lives? And we, we just don't know yet. I mean, I think we intuitively know what it feels like, <laughs> yeah, but we, we do don't, th there's not sort of like written data about what that means for us. So all of that is to say, of course, it's a really natural response when something happens that's scary or upsetting or alarming or destructive to want to do something to help and to want to sacrifice something to help. And for artists, a go-to is, well, I'll do something more meaningful for other people. And I argue that we cannot live happily and holistically without art. We, there is, we need it. It is a part of survival. It is a part of understanding. It, it, it's like my favorite gift that humanity brings forth is mm -hmm. art. And I can't live without it. And so I need artists to make it. And I know artists can't live without making it. So I'm just like, why don't we just get rid of the, that concept that you have to get rid of this thing in order to do something else and instead find something that's workable, that lets you engage politically in the specific ways you want and need to and maintain your creative practice. And maybe sometimes those overlap and sometimes they don't. Yes. Yes. Um, I think you also do a lot of, a lot of the first couple of things that you're saying, you're normalizing, like that's a normal response. That's absolutely the first response that, um, artists also tend to think that they're alone and unique in terms of their interiors. Um, and I love the ways that you specifically address like internal work and interiors and how those relate to the external world and how as unique as we all are internally, there's also a lot that goes on that is exactly the same. Yeah. We're, and we're actually not that unique, you know, which I find to be a relief, frankly, because it's this sense of terminal uniqueness creates a lot of suffering. It, it, it inflates the ego and it creates suffering. And I find it a relief when I find out that, oh, this thing I'm going through, I am not alone with this. There are many other people experiencing this too, which means there's a way out of this. And yes. I'm not having I'm not having some experience on the planet that has no precedent and no solution. So one of the first things that led to me developing my practice with artists was uh, I wrote about my book working with artists through a retreat I helped found for five years for um, queer artists and writers. And one of the first things I noticed was when artists verbalized what was going on with them, their fears, their anxieties, their their troubles with 
their own projects or how to be an artist in the world in America, people said the same things over and over again. And I really paid attention to that and clued into that and realized that's significant that people feel alone in these thoughts and yet they are ubiquitous among their communities. There's something to that. Absolutely. And I don't ever want to have a problem that no one has ever experienced in the history of the world before. That sounds, that sounds terrible. It just sounds so awful, frightening and isolating. Yeah. So tell me about, um, one of my questions, this is a legit question is how did you get so smart? Like, how did you begin to transition from, um, I have this master's degree in counseling and also I do these art things. And how did that, how did that work? And how did you get sort of, my understanding is that you were sort of harassed into writing this book. Um, <laughs> so how, tell me a little bit more about how that happened, please. Um, well, so I have this master's degree and I had been working slightly tangentially to arts and culture for years because I worked at a women's center at a university and I brought a lot of programming to town. So I would essentially find my favorite writers, artists, thinkers, and fundraise to bring them to campus because it, I lived in a, in a Midwestern red state and there was lots of wonderful progressive communities, but they were small. And if I wanted programming that I related to, I was one of the people in town that really had to make that happen. So I had already been working tangentially to queer artists for a long time by fundraising for them and bringing them to my campus or to my town. Mm-hmm. So I had this thing going on and I had this master's degree in counseling psychology and I knew I wanted to move to San Francisco more than anything. And so I applied for every job I could find that would afford a life there back in 2007. And I got a job in a, in a breast cancer program, directing a breast cancer program. And so I moved to San Francisco and I hated that job as soon as I got there, (laughs) but I was so grateful for it because it got me there. I, I, I'm not a person who would move without a job and I definitely didn't have the money to do that. So I, I was very grateful that I had this job that got me to relocate to San Francisco. And I quit it after 10 months. But as soon as I got there, I sought out arts community. Um, I started dating my now wife, who is a writer and had a lot of queer creative community there. And I started participating in sort of the arts communities that I used to travel there on vacation to go experience their work. So I sort of immersed myself in this community and I got myself a grant writing mentor (laughs) and I asked an an arts organization that I loved, whose, whose work I'd been admiring and following for years. I just approached them and said, I love what you do. I would love to come work for you. If you ever have anything open, would you please consider me? And mm-hmm. they said, well, we just had someone quit. And we, it, it seems like you know how to do administrative work and, and managing things and raising money. So come work for us. And, and, and that's how I got started working, actually being paid by my first arts organization. And that was followed up very quickly by another arts nonprofit that also needed admin, somebody who's really good with administration. Because I'm, ex- I'm very organized. I'm extremely... I'm extreme Capricorn. I think in spreadsheets and bullet point lists. I'm very good at, I'm like the ideal managing director to an ideal visionary artistic director. That's like sort of, we fit together really well. So I started working in lots of areas where I would be um, helping implement an artistic vision that I really loved. And, And that's what started my work in the arts. 
And, it, you know, it wasn't for a few years. Actually, at the beginning of this time, I, I was living in San Francisco, working in the arts, and that was really fulfilling. But I did have this, every time I got a student loan bill, I was like, God, I feel terrible. I got this master's degree. I should be using it. I don't want to try to get licensed in California because it would take years. Why did I go to grad school? I had a lot of those feelings, mm-hmm. like I said, especially when every time my student loan bill came in every month. Um, but the thing is like, I ended up using it in this totally different way. I couldn't have predicted by developing this counseling practice, which I call consultation for legal reasons, but it's steeped in my counseling training because I opted not to try to get a a LPC to get licensed in California because there was like 6 million hoops and I would have had to take more classes. And I was like, are you kidding me? I already graduated. Anyway. So in a roundabout way, I ended up using that master's degree, but because the arts are sort of art never lets me down in this way. I really burn out in my twenties in feminist organizing. I did a lot of reproductive justice organizing and fundraising, mm-hmm. and I got really burnt out on that. And the 2004 election really burnt me out. Deep cut, deep cut story here. 2004 election. Go for it. <laughs> if we think, if we think, you know, the, for, for people who their first real adult election experience was 2016, with Trump, I had so many flashbacks to 2000 and 2004 with W. <laughs> Lest we forget, like I know history is trying to repaint him as this like outsider painter who is just like a nice guy that Michelle Obama, Obama sort of likes, but we hated him. Let's, lest we forget he started a war against a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. Yeah. So after all those years, I felt so burnt out on politics and campaigns and reproductive justice work. I still, these things meant so much to me, but I felt burnt out on them. And I thought I can't do that as a job. But I always felt like anything related to the arts, I can always do. That never burns me out. It's beautiful. And then how did you go from having this practice, this um, consultation practice, um, to like, yeah, this needs to be a book. Oh, Was it needs to be a book, idea? yeah. <laughs> um. I, I went full time with this practice back in 2013 after I, I quit my first and only museum job um, and realized I cannot work in an institution. And in fact, I cannot have a boss. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot have a boss. Um, so I started, I decided that I think what I do can support me financially and just immediately sought out expanding that. Then, dur- not long after, my wife and I relocated to Los Angeles because she got a really great job down here that she couldn't turn down. And a lot of our friends had already moved here because the Bay Area became unlivable for queer artists. So most of our community had been forced out or left of their own accord. So we moved to Los Angeles and I kind of felt like I was at this crossroads of like, huh, will my business make sense here? Will artists here like this? I don't even know. So I started dabbling to see how could I expand my business in Los Angeles? Could I get clients down here? Uh, immediately, immediately, I had more work than I could manage and had to turn down clients immediately. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any peers or coworkers or colleagues. So I have nobody to refer people to. I have this, I, I happened into something that's called a blue ocean strategy. My friends in business explained it to me, which in the business world means you have no competition. It's just you. 
And yes. I didn't do that intentionally, but that's what I have, which is awesome because I can always support myself. The flip side is I can't refer people to anyone. I can refer them to therapists and I do all the time. I could refer them to career counselors. I can refer them to people who work with artists in different capacities and definitely fundraisers. But the work that I do is so specific to my specific, to my training, to putting together arts management, fundraising and counseling psychology master's degree. It's this hybrid that's just really unique. And instead of that making me feel really great, I just felt terrible that I didn't have anything to give everyone I was turning down. And back in 2015, I thought I should just write this all down. If I just write it all down, then at least I have something to offer people. And so I started writing a book outline and all of my writer friends, including my wife and my good friend, Michelle T, they were very supportive and said, you know, this is how you go about doing that. So I I was working on this book outline that was kind of a general self-help book. And then election season happened. And right after the 2016 election is when I wrote my first pamphlet. I just busted it out really fast after the election called Making Art During Fascism to serve as a sort of a receptacle of all of the questions and concerns and fears I was hearing from so many artists And then to provide sort of a framework so that an artist could position themselves specifically and make choices about what to do next, rather than sort of staying in fear and anxiety and isolation. And that was really successful. People loved it and responded to it. And so my friend Michelle T, who has an imprint with Feminist Press, said, do you want to do a short book that sort of responds to our political times, but in the language of what you do? And I said, yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) And so I I took the language, I I took the work I'd already been developing in my book proposal for a general self-help and I combined it and expanded on the, the pamphlet making art during fascism. And that's what resulted in the manuscript um, your art will save your life, which Michelle T came up with that title, which was amazing because I'm not great with titles. She had the title idea. I was like, that's awesome. I love it. Um, And I worked with Feminist Press to get this out. And they just wanted a short book, 20,000 words. And I thought, I can do that. I can do 20,000 words. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I had to do it pretty quickly before and after work. But um, I did it. And now that book is out in the world. And I've gotten such a powerful response from so many artists. Like, it's definitely a book that is sold by word of mouth and by people recommending it. And um, by independent booksellers who like it and, and promote it in their stores, that's been really amazing too. So now I feel like I have this thing that I can offer artists and say this, this is a written account of what I do with artists. So even if I can't work with you directly, I'm telling you this is what I do so that I can offer you some tools to get started. Yeah, um, I have a couple of post-election illuminations that you shared Um, From number two of start exactly where you are, quote, I can start exactly where I am with what I have to work toward justice and be of service to someone more vulnerable than I am, end quote. Yeah, I, I often, like many other humans, (laughs) I want to look to what I don't have to give. You know, and I hear this all the time, like, I don't, I don't have money or, you know, I, I'm not a doctor. I want to go do doctors without border. I'm not a physician. We just sort of look to these extreme examples of solutions and supporting communities <laughs> and yes. reducing harm and suffering. 
And, but when I pull back and just think like, well, what do I know how to do? I know how to do a lot of things. I have a lot of specific training and I'm a functioning adult in the digital age. So I have some really basic skills that can be of use in many, many places. And so that, that was, um, that was part of the framework of making art during fascism was asking readers to assess what they do have to give, what resources, what skills, what they currently have right now in this moment, and to identify what they don't have, to make some really clear distinctions. And, and when I would have artists together in a making art during fascism drop-in group, which I did for a couple of months after the election, I would actually have everybody write down what they didn't have to give and then write that's okay next to each of them <laughs> to just sort of normalize for themselves. Like you don't have money to donate. That's okay. You don't have um, more than five hours a month. That's okay. Let's turn the focus back to what do you have? It's so wise. And then in number three, um, there are things you must accept and things you must change. Um, quote, my power lies in adding my one part to the whole end quote. Oh, God, I don't that sounds great. I don't remember. Right? Well, because I always want to be like the next coming of Christ. I'd be like, if I can't just fix the whole thing, then I don't want to do anything at all. Right. If I can't my chain works. myself to the White House and prevent this from happening, then I give up. Yes. But really, I, I think it's about seeing – I'm a really big fan of um, Musar practice in Judaism, which is looking at character traits and bringing them back into balance. And one of the character traits is humility. And humility – we tend to misunderstand, I, especially I think people who, I, th I think queer people, women, women, people of color, humility can sound too much like hum humiliation, or we associate it with like not taking up space. But humility is actually taking up your rightful place, not more than your place, but not less than your place. <laughs> and so I always think about like, well, what is my rightful place? How, how can I take up space that is rightfully mine? with my resources and my voice and what I have to give. So could I sway a national election? I could not. I, I could not. I don't have that power. I'm not in any world or um, profession that allows me to do that. But I, I have my one vote, which is important. And then I have the access to support and influence other campaigns through small donations, get out the vote tactics, encouraging people to vote disseminating voter guides to people at the last minute, like whatever part I have to give, I show up and give my place. That's how I have humility in building community. That's beautiful. And can you speak to the parts of us that naturally want to sort of shut down and isolate, particularly in the face of fascism? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, overwhelming. it's, it's so overwhelming. It's, you know, it's hard to be human. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to be human. And my clients, artists, again, I, th I think, I think the aspect that makes an artist who they are and makes them be able to create things, anything is tied to what makes them specifically sensitive to the world. And that sensitivity is their strength and their vulnerability all at the same time. And so we live in particularly strange, overwhelming times. And depending on a person's intersecting identities, life has potentially always been overwhelming. And then we have this heightened climate around us, just this heightening of overwhelm and political chaos and, and hate language 
nonstop hate language mm-hmm. and um, like kind of a collective hopelessness about our culture and country that, yeah, on, on any given day, I might say to one of my clients, like, you know what, you're alive. You showed up, you fed yourself, you brushed your teeth, you're doing great. But some <laughs> days, that yes. just might be enough. Some days, just, I heard some quote, I can't remember where, but I would love to attribute them, but that maybe it was like a, a spiritual Instagram or something, but it was like, you just have to, you just have to last until the moon rise tonight. And sometimes I think like, there's some days where that's, that's the best we can do is just keep my body chugging along, take care of any of my dependents and make it until the moon comes out. And then the next day might be one that is filled with so much more capacity, but overwhelm is inevitable. And sometimes we just have to take care of ourselves so that we can come back out of it. That's fair. And then there are parts that um, I find hard to believe, even though I know they're true. Um, and that's in the on generosity parts where you say you will make work that has an enormous impact on someone. You may never meet or hear from them, but someone will encounter a work you make and it will do something transformative for them. They will be grateful you exist, thankful you made the work and let it be out in the world. In order to get there, to let your work reach the people who need and want to experience it, you have to be of service to it. You have to make it, yes, and you also have to support its life after it's no longer your private experience. This takes enormous generosity. Oh, it sounds so good coming out of your mouth. You should just read my book everywhere. <laughs> I wanted you to hear it to be like, damn, like it's so, I can believe that of everyone else. And somehow when it comes to ourselves, we're just like, oh no, it's not. It's selfish yeah. to make art and share it. Totally. Yeah. And that's just the broken brain telling us what you're doing is crap. It's no good. But the crazy thing is people who make work that has profoundly changed my life, I hear it from them too. You know, it's just, it's, it's everybody's brain. Most artists' brains are just wired to be like, is this any good? What am I doing? Should I go be a nurse? Just that endless loop of devaluing <laughs> yeah. what you're doing. And that's okay. We can work with that. That's, it's, it's normal. It happens to a lot of artists. Um, that doesn't have to be conquered in order to keep going that we just know that's what's on the table. That's just your brain chattering away at you. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything with any of those thoughts. They can just kind of float away. But I think it takes, and I'm not an artist. I want to be really clear. And I, the, uh, the sort of fear and anxiety I had about putting out this book gave me a slight window into what it must be like for artists who are making things and putting them out into the world all the time and the incredible vulnerability that requires and the willingness it requires. It's a lot, especially again, in this digital age where every asshole's opinion is like right in front of you all the time. Mm -hmm. So it requires willingness and generosity, like a desire to let the thing go do its work in the world after you made it, even if you're not sure you like it anymore that seeing it as its own entity, the work you made, it will now have its own life. It will do its own work in the world. And every viewer or listener or reader, everybody who comes to your work, they will make their own meaning out of it because they bring their entire lives and and their day they just had to the work. So you don't have, the artist doesn't have any control over that. No matter how overt the meaning of the work is, other people bring their own lives to it. So um, it's sort of like, willingness and generosity are required to 
to have an artist complete a work and then support it getting out into the world so that people can experience it. And I can think of like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of work that I couldn't even tell you who the artist was now, but I felt changed in that moment of experiencing it. Like it did something to me on a continuum. Sometimes it's a life-saving thing. Sometimes it's a day-changing thing. Sometimes it's a moment of an internal experience that I couldn't have had without that work. Yeah, it's beautiful. And why can you help help me understand? One of my questions was, why do you write books but not call yourself an artist? I don't call, for one thing, I, I write self-help, which I, I, I don't really think of as creative writing. Um, and the thing I observe in artists is that they have a need to make work. It's a compulsion deep inside of them to make things because it's how they take care of themselves and process their life and times. And I don't have that. I have a ton of hobbies and I love to be creative in a lot of ways. And I always have, I don't have that compulsion to make things. Um, but I need a lot of art. I definitely feel like I'm part of an art art community in that way where it's sort of a reciprocity. I am a, an eager and willing audience to all kinds of work in every form. And I'm an arts professional and I have a vested interest in making sure that a large group of artists continue to make their work and have it grow and evolve over time. But I, yeah, I, d- I don't identify as one. Got it. Um, and what does your own sort of creative practice that is not art look like? Like, how does that shape up? Oh, you know, in my twenties, I had a clothing line that was like all recycled material. And I, for years had radio shows on different underground independent radio stations. Um, I wrote a very bad novel during national novel writing month, like 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love to be creative with food. I love to cook. I love to, I'm a really big reader. Like I am a voracious, insatiable, curious person. And I, I'm interested in everything. I really think it's my astrological makeup that makes me this way. (laughs) I'm extremely curious about everything. I just want to know so many things. Um, And so I have a lot of curiosity that takes me down different creative paths, but I have no compulsion to make things, to have like some ongoing practice or to make something and share it with the world. Like I said, I don't really think of my self-help book as creative writing. It feels very practical. Although my next book that I'm working on right now is going to be, I think, crafted a little bit better. Because after you write a first book, you see, oh, here's how I can do it better next time. Because it's a skill. You get better at it the more you do it. Of course. And do you know what your next book is called yet? Uh, well, the title is still pending. I have a title for it. I don't know if that's what's going to live. I'm working with an agent and we're sort of finalizing my proposal right now. But I can tell you that the next book is a longer, more expanded self-help book for artists. Beautiful. Um, and which art or artist is inspiring you to keep going right now? It sounds like the list is is long. Oh yeah, I have. Well, I can tell you <clears throat> sort of like what I'm reading, listening to, all that kind of stuff right now. Yeah. Um. I. So right now I'm I'm on like a year long immersive study program before I go to China. Which I, I used to live in China. I went to school there for a while, and I love China. I love the history and the language, 
Um, so I'm, I'm going back next fall. It's my birthday present to myself because I turn 40 next year. And it's amazing. So I'm like watching tons of contemporary Chinese film, reading contemporary Chinese novels, and reading a lot of nonfiction about modern China. And right now I'm reading one of the most famous, very controversial novelists named Yan Lianke. And he has a book called The Explosion Chronicles. And I'm reading that right now. And I love it. <laughs> it's amazing. He just had a big profile in The New Yorker like in the past six to eight weeks. Um, and so I decided I'm going to read his entire bibliography. I'm going to read all of his books before I go to China. <laughs> so I'm loving that book. And with that, uh, in LA, about a month ago, we had something called the um, China On Screen Biennial, Contemporary Chinese Directors. And I saw a film by a young, I think in mid-20s, late 20s, woman director. Um, and I just want to make sure I get her name right. Look it up right. Okay. Um, a filmmaker named Yang Mingming, and she had her first feature film come out called Girls Always Happy. And it was phenomenal. It was so funny and weird and wonderful and looked at this really intense relationship between oh, a young writer and her mother who she lives with. It was fantastic. It was one of the best films I've seen in a long time. Um, and let's see, what else am I really... I love to talk about this monthly performance night that I go to in Los Angeles called um, Weirdo Night by performance artist Jibs Cameron. Her performance alter ego is called Dynasty Handbag. And she's from the <laughs> sort of, she's from the New York downtown cabaret world of Justin Bond and many others. Um, so she has this monthly night that's sort of like queer church for a lot of people. It's a lot of queer and just weird performing artists who work in different medium, um, a lot of performance, video, music, and and then she'll perform as well. And it's every month and it's this big gathering of just like so many beautiful queer weirdos who come to see the show. I go to that almost every single month. And it's something like every time there's some giant tragedy, I feel like, oh God, I can't wait to go to Weirdo Night. Because I know Jibs is going to do performance around it that acknowledges the rage and insanity and makes everybody have a cathartic laughing experience together. It's such a gift to the Los Angeles community. That's beautiful. That's, um, that's like the only way that I've survived the last two years is due to Trevor Noah and the team at the daily show. I feel like that's, that's a service. Oh yeah. Do. All of these things, they're really important services. There's so, I mean, Trevor, no, so that show is going to like tens of millions of people and Weirdo Night is servicing like 250 plus people once a month. Those 250 people are having this massive reprieve, this moment of collective unity, this moment of catharsis. It helps them then go face the next month. It is such a service. That's gorgeous. And then, um, because I feel like it would be a wasted opportunity if I didn't ask you about it. Um, if someone is new to the world of grants and grant writing and they find it horribly intimidating, um, where would you recommend beginning to look for either for training or for guidance or for help in some capacity 
Yeah. Yeah. To be able to enter that world. Totally. Well, it's, I mean, it's its own world with its own skills and language. So it is of course, overwhelming and off-putting to somebody who's brand new to it. And that's normal. I think the first thing to do is get a little bit of training and information. So if you live in or near a city, there are likely arts service organizations that do grant writing workshops or intro to grants. And if you don't live in an area or can't find that near you, then you can look at the Foundation Center. If you just look up online, Foundation Center, it's an organization that serves other nonprofits. And they host webinars throughout the year on all kinds of topics. And once or twice a year, all their programming is specifically focused on the arts. So you can take um, online classes that are just an intro to the world of grants and how do you find grants and how do you write a budget? I think the first thing to do rather than just jump in and and write something, not knowing what you're doing is get a little bit of information first, do a little bit of learning. I'm a Capricorn. So I like to research and learn before I do something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But grant writing is just a skill. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. It's there's no gift. There's no inherent gift I have to raising money. It's just a desire and a skill. And I've been doing it for over 10 years. So of course, I should be good at it by now. When I first started, I was terrible. But I and I took a lot of workshops. And I had a mentor who was teaching me his specific way of writing grants and everything he knew about it. So mentorship and classes. I like it. And then if, uh, if people are in LA, do you have any workshops coming up or is that sort of taking a back burner while you write your next book? Um, I will have some workshops coming up through in Glendale. I don't have a lot of details on them yet, but, um, I teach a lot of workshops through the women's center for creative work, which is a feminist arts organization here in Los Angeles. And anybody in LA, I just tell them, you should know, you should be on that listserv anyway, because they do incredible programming throughout the year. But I frequently teach um, finance, personal finance classes and grant writing for artists classes there. Beautiful. And when you talk personal finance for people, specifically artists, what do you find is the most common, the most common question that you get and the most common answer that you give? Most common question about money. I think it's just general bewilderment because (laughs) money is, it's so emotional so the first thing I do when I teach personal finance, whether it's I, I teach at CalArts, the um, California Institute of the Arts, and in workshops, I, so I, I teach a lot of young and emerging artists about ha- how to grapple with money. And the first thing we do is actually get into noticing what happens for you when I talk about money. Like first identifying where in your body do you feel it? Are you starting to shut down? Are you getting flooded? Like to notice what happens because money creates so much overwhelming emotion and fear and anxiety in people that I believe first we have to start with that before we do any skill building. Because mm-hmm. I can tell people here, here, here's a pathway to start saving money and earning more money. I can tell you a bunch of skills and to-dos, but if you're having a panic attack quietly in the corner, you're not going to absorb any of it. I learned that with teaching grants too. So the first thing I do in all of my workshops is we actually, we have an embodiment activity so they can actually get in their body and then have them look inward to identify what happens for you specifically when you grapple with this topic. And I have them write it out or like draw a demon or whatever they can sort of <laughs> locate because that information is so powerful because once we know we can do something about it. So I'd say the general question is just, what, how, 
<laughs> and my answer is let's start with you and where you come from with money. That is wise. And then I had um, one more quote that I thought sort of wrapped the whole thing up, which is, um, you are not alone. You have what you need for your life, for art, and for justice. Stay with your creative path, trust your vision, and know that your contributions matter to someone else. Ah, so sweet. Page 11. (laughs) Beth Pickens throwing it down. (laughs) I have so many friends who are writers who've written books that when they would read them, they would say, God, I don't remember writing this. Like you get into a writing zone. Mm -hmm. And then I experienced it too. Because when I recorded my audio book last month, I didn't remember. There were so many sentences and words and passages, both good and bad, that I was Mm -hmm. like, did I write that? I have no memory of writing that. I know I did. Nobody else wrote this, but I don't remember it. Yeah, like, where did this come from? Yeah. What is happening? <laughs> yeah. Um, so. So what sort of like, what does that mean? I mean, I think that sort of nails it, but is there anything? Because you, it was like that, that's exactly the thing that we want you to take from this. Um, but is there anything else that you just sort of wish, like, everyone knew about making art? Mm-hmm. Um, you need a community. You must have community. And community is something you cultivate through work and time. It's, it's an active, not a passive experience. And community is crucial to your well-being, your success, and your enjoyment of your creative practice. Yeah. And for the people that feel like lonely or isolated or just like, where do I even begin? Um, Where do you push people to begin for community? Start with the lowest hanging fruit. What exists around you? Hmm. And start in real life. You can, you will and have and can add online digital relationships that are far away. That's great. But start with people in your life. Start with people who are, that you can get to physically. Start with what's in your town or city. Start locally. Beth Pickens knows some shit. <laughs> uh, if people want to purchase your book, they can do so at? Um, wherever fine books are sold. You can also order one from any conglomerate that sells books online. You can also order it directly from Feminist Press at a discount. Excellent. And all those links are at bethpickens.com. And then how does one get these magical pamphlets of which you speak? Yes, I have two pamphlets. The first was post-election called Making Art During Fascism. The second came out just a couple months ago called On Artists and Hopelessness. And you can get a free PDF from me. And you do that just by writing to me through my website, through the contact me form. Um, Or if you want to buy a copy that's already beautifully printed and have it shipped to you, you can go to the Women's Center for Creative Work, which is based in Los Angeles, their online store, and they will. you can buy those pamphlets and many other amazing things. And when you buy the pamphlets through the Women's Center, it 100% supports that nonprofit. I don't take any money from it. Yes. And when is your, when do you suspect your next book will be available? Because this book came out this year, and so we all need like the next one within you know, right, four to yeah. six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> in a couple of weeks. No. Um, uh, maybe fall 2020. Okay. We have a while. 
Yeah. It'll be either before the 2020 election or after. Like where I, where my agent and I are talking about like the sort of the timing and what publishers might go for, but <laughs> it's either going to be time to come out before that election or it's going to come out after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got to roll the dice there. Yeah. And I have, you know, I have a professional Instagram. Um, I'm at Beth Pickens Consulting. And that's a place where I announce all this kind of stuff. I also answer questions. So people can write me through Instagram and say, you know, this is the question I have. And I'll answer it on my Instagram. I love it. Thank you for doing your your work in the world. It's Thank you for doing your work. Nice. Thanks for collecting all this information from so many people and putting it out and making it available. Podcasts are such an important resource because for one thing, they're free. They're not free to make, but they are free for people to listen to. And I am loving the golden age of podcasts. I listen to like 50 podcasts. <laughs> what is your current favorite? Oh my God. I have, I have a lot of favorites, but I, I could just say right now, one of, one of my favorites is You Must Remember This, which is stories of um, lost and forgotten Hollywood by Karina Longworth. And she has a new book coming out and I'm going to her reading Monday night in Los Angeles. So I am like psychotically listening to all of <laughs> you must remember this she did a series about charles manson a 12-part series that i've listened to twice it was so good and wow. sort of contextualizing charles manson as a loss as a hollywood story like how that was so specific to hollywood um so yeah i, I love that one i love many of them and actually i put a compendium of every podcast that i love and listen to on my Instagram in stories and everyone was like, Oh my God, can you please write this down somewhere? So it's now in the highlights on my Instagram page so that I can go back to it and other people can go back to it. Cause I'm always trying to like keep track of all the podcasts that I listen to. And now I'll be listening to yours too. I got to add this to the list. <laughs> That's magnificent. Um, and I don't know that the people's know, um, Everybody gets paid a hundred bucks for being on my show, but um, Beth generously chose to forego that. And so her fee will be donated to Together Rising. So thank you. That's awesome. That. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing that, for having that option. Anytime. So uh, I'm going to hit the magical stop recording button, but thank you so much for, for stopping by and tuning in and being so goddamn delightful. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. One more time, The Antidote is a series of monthly gatherings to help you come back to your body, your being, and your breath when it's most likely that you'll self-abandon. The Antidote is the antidote to trying to do everything all alone, all by yourself, while you grow more stressed and you're generally freaking out and telling everyone you're fine while quietly or not so quietly, scream sobbing in a private place between tasks. Let's not do that. Let's try something different. This is a really simple format, one gathering a month on the first Tuesday of the month until the 2024 election. So we're practicing the skills that we will need in November now and we're getting really comfortable with body, breath, and being now. And that's available to you at jointheantidote.com. There's a free recording. You can sign up. You can get more details. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. <laughs>